Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is my great friend, Dr. Jazz Rundawa. Jazz is the lead performance therapist at Altus, where I recently interned back in uh, November of 2016, up until February of 2017. Um, on this episode, myself and Jazz discuss many topics, or should I say Jazz and I discuss many topics, make sure I get my English correct. Of course, we discuss Jazz's background and his influences, the good and not so good things that Jazz sees within the physical preparation profession, as well as the rehabilitation profession, Jazz's training and performance therapy philosophy, therapeutic inputs and its effect on mechanotransduction, uh, on coming to Altus and taking over the role of lead performance therapist, Jazz's experience of his first ACP at Altus, Jazz's top resource and advice to all the listeners, and much more. This was a really great episode, guys, and I hope that you really enjoyed. Jazz, it is an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you come on to the All Things Strength and Wealth podcast. I am not even going to attempt to butcher your second name, because if I do, not only will I get shit from you, but no doubt if I ever go to Altus, I'll be getting shit off everyone, particularly Stu, probably. <laughs> Stu will be like, you can't, can't, can't even say his second name right, so I'm going to let you introduce yourself in terms of who you are and your name. Um, so take it away, my friend. All right, thanks, Robbie. I appreciate you having me on the podcast. I've been waiting a while, man, to be on this thing, so I appreciate. Well, you're a busy man to tell ta- 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 when 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 uh, when you when you have a guest who fucking works like uh, twenty hour days uh, between actual in the trenches and then goes home and just reads either side of that work. You know, it's kind of hard to pin you down. So just for the listeners who don't know, this guy got up at this guy's been up since four thirty reading research, no doubt. And now it's it's six it's twenty past six a.m. over in Arizona, and he's doing a podcast. And then he used to go straight over to Altus to treat athletes for about up until four p.m. or five p.m. on a Saturday, just to let you know this is a Saturday over there. And then he'll go home and he'll attempt to give his wife some attention, but he's probably too busy reading another research paper. That's a perfect introduction. That's pretty much my life. There you go. That, that's the background. That's all we need to know. Yeah. Okay. All, no. all right. You take it away. I'm going to show up now. All right, yeah, I'm, so I'm Dr. Jazz Rendawa. I am the lead sport medicine uh, doctor for Altus here in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, prior to that, I was with Canada Basketball. Uh, had a great pleasure working with Charlie Weingroff and Sam Gibbs, uh, two outstanding uh, people in general of themselves. Uh, and my background is I'm a chiropractor by trade. However, I think that I fall into uh, the realm where a lot of other therapists have kind of migrated to both being an osteo, a chiropractor, a physical therapist, and just a real blend of different therapeutic um, interventions and more concerned with philosophy rather than, you know, being labeled something. Um, I also, as I get asked why, why I got into this profession, and I think for me it's uh, probably a similar story to a lot of other practitioners who are out there. I started actually as a strength coach. I had my own strength and conditioning business for a number of years, uh, and really, really enjoyed that aspect of it. It's just when you have an athlete who comes back to you after having a phenomenal season, but they get hurt in their school or within the organization, and you refer out to you know, mel, well, sorry, well-meaning uh, healthcare practitioners who just can't really get them back to where they were before. I started to, you know, I get a little annoyed, we'll say, at that situation. So I just took it upon myself to 
to figure things out. And it all started with one of my friends who had a, an ACL reconstruction. And I thought, you know what, like, you didn't have the money to really go get uh, any real good healthcare. And so we just did it ourselves, and I kind of fell in love with that aspect of it. That kind of led me down the route of, uh, you know, wanting to do this as, as a profession. So that's what kind of led me into getting into at least chiropractic, uh, and really kind of describes where we're at now here at Altus, a very uh, eclectic way of looking at the human body uh, and treating it, really kind of blending in this sport performance world with this performance therapy world, which is, uh, I think, something that is very, very unique. And very excited to kind of spread that message across uh, across the professions. Yeah, was it Jeff Cubus who got you to go back to chiropractic yeah, school? Yeah, yeah, I'll. Uh, so it was, you know, oddly enough, I think everyone starts off as training coach. <laughs> I got, I got to thank Mike Boyle and Anthony Renner for kind of creating that site. Yeah, me too. To, me too. Yeah, like the mid mid two thousand, I believe, right? And uh, you know, everyone was on that site. Like Charlie was there, Patrick Ward was there, uh, and Cubus was there. And we had, you know, started a conversation. Uh, I think it, the conversation spread into HockeyStrengthAndConditioning.com, Sean Skane's site, which, of course, is another you know, well guy. Uh, I think Devin McConnell is running that with him now. Um, and I had talked to Kubos uh, on that site. It's like, hey, man, you know, he got wind that I was going to chiropractic school. He was asking me what school I was going to, and it ended up being the same one as him. There's only one, really, in Canada. Um, and so I kind of just asked him for his advice on, you know, what realm to kind of travel um, things that I, I need to kind of do and he was a huge help in my early years and kind of setting uh, the stage for, for where I am now in this kind of movement piece so definitely got to thank the mentors along the way and who still are mentors especially with Cubos and, and Charlie and Patrick Jazz, who would you say has been now you suppose you, you've just named a few there but who would you yeah. say have also been the biggest influences on you professionally and then also personally. Yeah, professionally, like obviously those um, those guys are have been a huge influence. Uh, I really got to thank Charlie. I think he's a big part of the reason why I'm even here now. Uh, learned obviously a lot from him. Uh, the other guys would obviously be like Dan Path, Steve McMillan. Those guys from a professional standpoint, like you talked about me working hard, like Stu. Stuff that he has to do on a day-to-day basis is just to another level. So, uh, as much you know, it's great to say that Chaz is up at 4:30. He's reading. It's kind of a little bit of a luxury um, that I take advantage of. But with Stu, like his work ethic is just uh, to another level. So to be able to catch up to someone like that would be an ultimate goal. Um, personally, honestly, it's the same people. Uh, you start to have. Different relationships with your mentors, and it kind of shifts a little bit from solely being uh, I need to learn stuff and it kind of help you along the way to you know how do you how do you manage life? How did you guys manage you know being in a position where you're working so many hours? Right, uh, I think that was a big uh, a big thing for me talking to to Charlie and talking to Kudos and, and even Stu for that matter, all that stuff. Uh, the other personal things that I think in my life would be honestly parents for sure. Uh, I say that because being from an immigrant family, um, they worked very, very, very hard uh, when we were young. So that, I think that really got instilled into me. Uh, and so from a personal level, that's that's where I think I, I developed my work ethic from. Uh, the other thing I would say right now uh, is because I'm back into doing jiu-jitsu, probably my instructors. Uh, from a 
personal level, it's it's very zen, we'll say, like the way that uh, jujitsu has kind of played uh, a role in my life. When we look at the uh, the mental aspect of things and just being able to kind of decompress at the end of the day, I think there's no better way. I think everyone should do jujitsu, and there's a lot of parallels I've kind of started to draw between doing jujitsu and, and therapy. We'll get into that a little bit later, but mm. uh, those would probably be the, the people right now who I, I turn to and stuff like that. All right, so I'm going to give you the load of question. Uh, okay. I think this is a question you'd like. In, in terms of the good, the bad, and the ugly, what are the things that currently excite you in the performance therapy profession? And then on the other end of that spectrum, what are the things that disappoint you the most in what you're seeing? And with the things that disappoint you the most, what sort of solutions would you put forth to uh, to make them disappoint you a little less, if you like? So basically, what, what are the good things you're seeing and what are the bad things you're seeing within the performance therapy field? And if you want to branch that out into the physical preparation field or even performance, you can as well. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I think what, what really kind of I find interesting now is that we're, we're shifting from this whole view on you know assessing and treating anatomy to assessing the anatomy and treating histology. And that, that's something that I got from Spina. Uh, histology is something that really, really kind of just interests me. I think it's something that when we were going through it in school, we all breezed over more or less. Like you took the class because you know you had to. Uh, you look under this microscope and you're like, okay, yeah, this is you know, a purple stain, this is a pink stain, this is a mitochondria, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. But you never really think about that stuff. Uh, and it's not until later something just motivates you, like, oh, energy systems. And then you start to think, oh, wait a minute, these mitochondria we were talking about, they're actually quite important. And what role does the cell play in energy system development? And so you start to tie in uh, different realms of science. And I think that's the really interesting thing to me to see how how we've kind of you know we've gone from this one big like, like I'll use tendons as an example um, when we we're talking about inflammation of tendons just you know in 2000 to when gel cup comes out she's like oh well it's actually cellular changes and like okay that makes sense and then we start diving in deeper into that oh wait a minute tendons you know the cells are proliferating at this rate they're immature they need load and then that load equation comes in. And now we have you know, these clinicians who are starting to adopt strength conditioning or physical preparation uh, principles that have been used for a number of years. You can, you know, if you want to go back and look at isometric, concentric, eccentric actions, that's been done. And so we've known about that. It's just interesting to see that now, uh, at least from the clinical side of things, we're starting to look at the histological changes that occur when we apply these different means or, or different methods, I should say. Uh, and I think that's really, really motivating to me. I think that's uh, probably where the future is definitely headed now that we're looking at stuff like you know, fluid dynamics in the system and having functional MRIs are able to kind of actually see where you know, things are traveling in our body and it, perhaps wh what type of interventions will lead to you know, different changes in that state. Uh, that being said, it, we start to switch the conversation looking at things that are kind of annoying, I guess, you'd say. Is that still people are still kind of stuck in this like dinosaur age of protocol-based um, treatment, or mm. using the same procedure for everyone who kind of walks in through the door. Everyone's histology is is different. Everyone is you know an end of one, if you will. 
to me to just stick to the old kind of dinosaur ways of looking at treatment, creating these treatment plans where you're you're a slave to the piece of paper and it tells you exactly what you need to do each day. You have these you know, criteria uh, that are time based instead of being you know actually movement based or you're hitting certain milestones before you progress. I think that's the, the stuff that I'm really hoping will will change. Yeah. I think overall, the profession now that we have you know younger and younger clinicians who are kind of entering this world, and they're they're already you know, very astute and they're keen to the, uh, more of a I keep saying movement based, but really just a physical preparation slash clinical kind of world. I think that that will start to change, and I'm really excited about that. So there's definitely hope with this younger generation. I don't think they're going to fall into the same kind of ways of practicing as the older generation has. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative way to anyone. Of course, you always want to respect people who have come before you because they've done a lot of stuff. I would say just in general, these are kind of my thoughts of what the profession is. Great stuff. In terms then of a question I always ask everyone, your overall arching philosophy currently where it's at right now in, in, in your mo- in your mind in this moment. So like if I was to ask you, you know, what is your philosophy or and it's funny, I, I just, just had Liam Dr. Liam Hennessy on uh, on the podcast literally just before we got online and I was asking him like, you know, what is his sort of philosophy when it comes to physical preparation and I was saying in that question, you know, some people don't like the term philosophy. They think it's kind of subjective or airy-fairy or wooey, so they prefer the term principles. So you can go whatever you want, philosophy, principles. But basically, I'm trying to ask you, like, what are your big rocks when it comes to performance therapy and optimizing the preparation of the athletes that you work with? For sure. Uh, I think one of those pieces for sure is understanding that whenever you have a, we'll call it a dysfunction, uh, for lack of a better word, but when you have that happening, I think there's three areas that you need to, in your mind, sort out first. Uh, is this the function? Is it the actual victim? Meaning, is there something else up or downstream that could potentially be leading to what we're seeing? Uh, is it the culprit? You have you know, knee pain because you just blew out your ACL. That's your knee, right? So you, you need to go after that. And the third thing would be, is it just a blueprint? Uh, is it just a way that an athlete moves? And it may not necessarily be a good or a bad thing. But it just happens to be there, and you need to be able to assess that and see if it's you know falling outside of its norm on a day-to-day basis. Uh, putting those three things in perspective, I think, starts my principles. Uh, I think a lot of people get stuck into the you know, treating the site of, of what they're they're seeing instead of looking, you know, as Dan would say, the what else and where else. Uh, and, and that's a big thing for me is not to get stuck uh, into my confirmation bias of you know if someone has pain at the elbow or at the knee, that's where I want. That's my first thought. I want to be looking elsewhere first, and kind of looking at the body as, uh, as a whole and taking a holistic approach to that. The other thing I would say is a big principle for mine is this concept of immediacy. And that might be new for some some people, and I think that's one of the, the big defining uh, principles of performance therapy is that immediacy of treatment, immediacy of results. When we're at the track, the goal isn't to you know, pull somebody out and spend you know half an hour an hour working at something that would just completely disrupt the session and if we start to look at uh, a modern learning approach uh, 
I'm putting way too many variables into the equation for the athlete to deal with, and I actually want to let them self-organize instead of having me, you know, disrupt whatever flow state they're getting into. And so we do want to have a, a quicker input, do what's needed, uh, no more, no less. And in addition to that, it, it needs to be at the track. So traditionally, they might have an athlete who, let's just say, they're competing in basketball. If they have a practice, something happens. They'll drive to their clinician. Uh, the clinician will diagnose it. Fortunately, sometimes it's just through tabletop testing, which is not being even close to what they do in their sport. Um, come up with a diagnosis. Come up with a treatment plan. Treat it. Basketball player will go home. 24 hours later, they're back in, you know, at the court trying to work through whatever they're going through. Um, this time that's in between, that, that, that to me can be a killer, right? You, you don't know what's exactly going on because you weren't there to see it. Uh, in addition, treatment is far and removed from the actual practice. In addition to that, there's that communication piece. Did the clinician speak with the coach? Uh, and oftentimes that's a, you know, a piece that's missing. Sometimes it's the coach's fault, sometimes it's the clinician's fault. But when there's a breakdown in communication, we're, we're losing it. Key piece to athletic development, and so with performance therapy and with this EDC model, it's having that that we call it performance performance uh, triad, where the athlete, coach, and therapist are working together. And there's communication happening immediately or in real time between uh, those three individuals. So I think that that would be another piece of my my principles. Uh, the last thing I would say is uh, taking an understanding. A histological approach, or what adaptation are we actually getting? Mm. It's, to me, it's we don't want to solely stick to this idea of hey, here's a protocol for a lower limb, you know, uh, soft tissue maneuver. It's not really about that. It's about assessing uh, what you feel uh, and being able to, in your mind, actually have an intent when you're treating, versus just passively going through. You know, here's what I do for my my lower limb stuff. Uh, I think that's that's something that young clinicians really need to understand because it's easy to get caught up in, I need to go to this seminar, I need to go to that seminar, take this course, and this is the protocols that they, they, you know, they, they teach you. And you get stuck into that just procedure, 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 instead of actually having a little bit of freedom of yourself to kind of explore. And um, I think that piece is uh, something that needs to be addressed for sure. Great stuff. The question I want to ask you is just in terms of your journey since you've went to chiropractic school and qualified and left, what have been some of the big sort of turning points in your thought process when it comes to, again, performance therapy and optimizing performance? So maybe since you've left college, like what are certain things that uh, were, you know, big turning points in your career up until, until now? So basically, like what have been some massive aha moments? I'm sure like when you sort of mentored under charity with Canadian basketball you had a few and I'm sure um I'm sure since you've left Canadian ba- Canada basketball and then gone to Altus you've, you've had even more of those sort of light bulb moments so can you maybe share some of those some of those moments yeah. with us yeah absolutely I think uh, actually getting into chiropractic school uh, like day one was probably a big aha moment for me uh, the reason I say this is in my mind I thought it's going to be I'll get there, everyone already knows, like Greg Cook, everyone already knows the FMS, everyone already knows SFMA, um, and it's going to be the next step after that. 
and what I was um, almost shocked to think or to see was that no one really even knew about these principles or who, let alone who these people were. And so that that kind of set up the stage for me to, okay, well, if I'm not going to get it here, where can I get this education? Um, and that was, you know, again, traveled halfway across the country. And it was a little bit of a, I don't want to say the word disappointment because I, I enjoyed chiropractic school and I thought it was phenomenal and the things that they were able to teach is just for what I was thinking, it wasn't quite the same. So that was the first, I think, big aha moment of I need to be self-sufficient and how am I going to, you know, manage to learn everything I think is important in the next four years. And, and that's where the, uh, the mentors really came, came, came in uh, and where I think people need to understand that. It's not necessarily the school you go to, or a great school. I'd be more worried about developing the right mentors, people who are going to be able to teach you, but at the same time, uh, people who are willing to take feedback or learn something from you as well. It shouldn't always just be a one-way street. And the people that, you know, obviously I mentioned earlier, they're, they're all like that. So you strike this communication, the two-way flow. So I think that was the, the biggest aha moment for me, and I'm, I'm very, very happy that I figured out, okay, mentors are important. These people are going to be like your lifeline for the next four years, uh, and that you need to be self-sufficient in your learning. The second one would probably be in, I'm trying to remember if it was 2012, I think you were, you had the invite as well. Charlie had Patrick come to uh, Drive 495 mm. uh, in New York, uh, and Patrick basically at this point was just on his way to Nike, or was working at Nike, I can't recall, but he did a brain dump of his entire philosophy, uh, thanks to Sam, because Sam kept bugging him that summer, and so it was like, I don't know, 300 slides or whatever, what, what was in Patrick's mind, um, and that, to that point in time, after having attended, oh man, probably upwards of 30 or 40 courses, that was like the best thing I had ever been to. Uh, and it opened my mind to a lot of different things uh, and some stuff that I was missing. And really where I think this idea of adaptation, uh, means over methods, understanding the biology of adaptation really kind of hit home for me. Uh, of course, up until that point, it was important, but just the way that Patrick had presented everything, uh, and just seeing how analytical he was, um, that was like, okay, I, I need to, I really need to do a better job of understanding all this stuff. Because up until that point, I think I was, uh, I won't say falling into the trap, but everything was procedural knowledge, right? It was just, hey, these are the things you need to do. Whereas Patrick, it, it kind of opened that, that gate for me a little bit of, hey, you need to understand a whole lot more than just, you know, A and B. You need to go from A to Z and know everything in depth. So I think that was a huge piece. When the next, obviously, big one was when Charlie had asked me to, to come on board with Canada basketball, um, just to see the stuff that they were doing, uh, that was huge, uh, and really, really into a harmony of different technologies, um, and seeing how that was being used, uh, having to get comfortable with using it, and again, really understanding why it is what you're doing and, and what we're looking for. I think that really opened the gate into the uh, sports scientist, if you will, in the just because we had access now to you know, the Omega Wave, if you had access to Catapult, to various heart rate monitoring systems. So those things that everyone who attends, like you know, 
parts of the SMPG you hear about, you see, but because of financial restrictions, you don't necessarily have access to it. That was all just, just like a kid in a candy store, really, right? You have, here it is, whatever you need, we can kind of get you. And I think that kind of set the stage for me to understand what, answering the question, what are you looking for? Like, what problem are you trying to solve? Uh, prior to this, you understand adaptation, you know how things work, but asking better questions uh, and really looking at things from, from that lens was a big eye-opener for me. Instead of just trying to monitor everything, having a simple uh, question of, okay, what am I trying to get? What am I really after? I think that was a, a big piece. Around that same time, um, World Athletic Centers, which is now obviously Altus, hosted the first ever performance therapy uh, program. And it was an invite only. It was just meant to be kind of a trial run. Uh, and I got invited to that. And so we had guys like Jason Ross who were there, Mars, who's a fantastic therapist, um, various ATCs from, from big name colleges, obviously Jerry Ramajita. Um, that was and still is now probably the biggest defining moment for me. Uh, and I'll give everyone a little bit of background on that. Uh, in addition to obviously you know, being able to attend the, the now performance therapy course, we were actually all staying in the same house. And so it would be, you know, you wake up in the morning, go get coffee as a group, you know, talk shop, get to the course, learn all day, come back, go for dinner with everyone. And so it was just a, a nonstop learning environment, especially with those great clinicians um, and great attendees. It was just a fantastic way to learn uh, and really opened my eyes to this idea of what is performance therapy and what we're doing now. Um, at the time, and I still think now, as performance therapy becomes a little bit more of a buzzword, people think that it's simply, you know, we're going to do clinical work, and then we're going to do some really good strength conditioning stuff versus you know, doing some clinical things with our hands, and then having you do these, uh, what I would define as just a little bit archaic rehab exercises, internal external rotation for your shoulder. Again, if you want to do that, that's completely fine. We'll take a little bit of a different approach, but with performance therapy, it's, it's not about that, really about that immediacy piece. It's about can you make uh, a quick change, an input to affect the athlete so that they're coming back into whatever mutual band that they operate in and ultimately uh, optimizing their performance for that day, uh, optimizing their performance for that training session. If we're able to put together more and more and more training sessions where the athlete is getting the full benefit from it, that's where we start to see these, these huge changes. Uh, I'll be the, I'm not the first person to say this, but Altus, we don't do anything special. There's no secrets. It really is just basic principles, but they're applied really, really well. And I think that, that was the other half of learning what performance therapy is. Being good at the basics. Uh, and when I say being good, it's being really good. Understanding rotational analysis, um, how to see things with your eyes, and, and this you know, it might catch a little bit of flat for, but it is you know obviously a subjective thing. But being able to train your eyes to see movement, and to see where deviations and at least sprinting technique are occurring, and possible causes for that, being able to do that in real time is definitely a skill. But it's something that I think you need it. You can apply that to every sport. And that might be another kind of missing piece, I think, from um, the clinical world where we have uh, really, really, really good sport uh, 
sport docs, whether you know, you're an osteo, you're a tyro, uh, you're a PT, um, who, are, who are good at assessing sporting injury. But what they might be lacking is a little bit of specificity to certain sports. And so if you have a track athlete, you understand you know, backside, frontside mechanics, you understand what that athlete needs to go through. Yes, they might have diagnosis X, but do you understand how that's going to affect everything else that they do? Are you able to visualize that movement? Are you able to coach the correct technique to help them uh, get back onto the track and be successful in that? Uh, and of course, I'm not expecting everyone to know how to you know, teach someone to run, but if there is a certain sport that you're a little bit more involved with, uh, I think it's crucial that you start to understand things from that rotational analysis standpoint. Go back and, and start to look at movement a little bit differently and maybe interact with the coach. This might be a reason why you see, start to see that at least some uh, therapists go back to the sport that they're involved in themselves because they understand it. Uh, and maybe they make for you know a better, a better therapist in that particular realm. But I think it's still a skill that we all kind of need to develop. Yeah, one thing that uh, I definitely took away from my time at Altus in, in terms of the performance therapy was I probably had gotten to a stage where I had underappreciated the input that manual therapy interventions could have. Um, you know, and then this was you were you and Jerry were kind of two individuals who really brought to my awareness the epigenetic influence that these manual therapy techniques can have on gene expression. And you know, we spoke about this during my time there that Okay, and if you, if you further take that concept and apply it to these athletes who are outliers and who are who are at that like extreme end of a bell curve within itself, you're like think about even more how much more of a impact that's having on gene expression because these guys have nervous systems that are like super super like just plastic in terms of learning and and you know retention and whatnot and um, particularly their plasticity in terms of learning and and then just picking up any. And he being able to like sensitize themselves any sort of input. So maybe just touching that jazz. Cause I know that's an area you really love to think about, and meditate on, and in terms of like what am I really subjecting the athlete to here in terms of of the sensory input I'm putting into their system. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think the the best way to kind of start with that is to to look at the cell itself as kind of a Mm. A sensing, a non-visual sensing uh, organization of different factors that can ultimately influence uh, phenotype and what ex- expressions we'll see in the genetic makeup of each athlete. So, <clears throat> the simple fact of me putting my hands on someone, uh, there's a lot that that's going on. I'm sure everyone now is kind of familiar with the candle transduction integrity model. What we once thought of is just this water balloon kind of just floating in you know, a closed system. Uh, the cell is definitely not that. And so from a tentegrity standpoint, if we start to look at you know, compression-resistant structures uh, with tensile-resistant structures making up a framework. And we, I think the example that a lot of people give is when fascial uh, background would be, okay, you have bones, and we have, you know, fascial slings. Bones would be your compression-resistant muscle and fascia, obviously your tension-resistant, and this is what gives your the human body its form. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that we can do, or what we can do is take that just kind of another layer deep 
And that same structure is what makes up the cell, where we have this cytosol, which is almost like a gel-like compression-resistant substance. And we have you know, microtubules, microfilaments, um, short intermediate fibers, which make up this cytoskeleton, or the compression-resistant structures. Now, being in that position, we also then have to look at this idea of kind of cell sensing, right, and mechanotransduction. So when there's a force that's applied from the outside, yeah, the skin is going to be the first interaction. But that pressure will continue uh, and to transmit. And cells, there's an idea of a duratexis or cell sensing where they're actually going to be attracted. It's almost like wherever we start to have our manual input, that becomes an attractor state. And cells will sense that and mm. migrate towards those areas. Mm. And because of this continuation of tensegrity from the skin, into obviously the cell, they have the ability to uh, kind of accept that force. And that force can, can then be transmitted into obviously the nucleus. And once it's inside the nucleus, now we look at genetic expression, right? Um, and we can start to see phenotype changes occur. Now I know all this sounds um, you know, a little out there perhaps, so I'll start to give maybe um, some, some examples that will at least make you kind of um, start to think of, okay, this, this actually does make sense. The fact that you're, you're hearing this podcast right now is mechanotransduction, right? Um, air is being uh, changed. It's going through your intraocranial and it's vibrating three little bones. And those vibrations are going to be picked up by a nerve, and that nerve goes to certain areas of your cortex where it's interpreted as sound. And that sound has meaning to it. But it all started with air entering at different hertz, different frequencies, rattling three bones. And there is mechanotransduction, right? The medium being air. Um, with phenotype changes, I give the example of an ACL, uh, which we spoke about earlier. Most, well, I shouldn't say most, but let's just say you have a hamstring graft. That becomes your new ACL, right? Uh, we know a hamstring is a tendon, so if you go back to your histology, if I took a tendon and put it under a slide, I would expect to see um, stereotypical characteristics of the tendon tissue, right? Type 1 collagen has a certain formation. If I was to then do a biopsy of that ACL graft uh, on day one, no doubt you're still going to have a tendon. But what if I fast forward to a year? A year of loading a certain way, is that tendon going to remain a tendon? or will have different properties. And in fact, we do that and we've seen this, it goes through a process of ligamentization. So you start to see this phenotype change in the cells of that tendon and become more ligamentous, which is again, from a histological standpoint, has characteristics that are different than characteristics of a tendon. And that's just your normal loading. And that's a process that you can read multiple papers on. So with those two examples, now we I hope we kind of start to understand <clears throat> mechanotransduction and then when we have this mechanotransduction or that force being applied to the cell, that cell being able to kind of perceive its environment, uh, and because it perceives, it starts to change. Um, I think that really drives home you know, how important those two points are. Now, in addition to that, I think there's, uh, we talk about fascially driven athletes here at Altis or mechanically driven athletes, and I'll speak on that a little bit because it kind of you know, relates to what we're talking about. If we look at someone like an Andre de Grasse, you know, obviously he, he doesn't look like the most you know, uh, 
muscular bound athlete in the world, um, but he's very, very fast. His ability to put force in the ground is almost like no other. Um, and so we've kind of classified him, and of course I'm using this just as an example, uh, as a fascially driven athlete. So he's very, very elastic, and he's able to use his fascial slings <clears throat> to propel himself down the track. Now, uh, I'll use Amir Webb, uh, American 200-meter runner, who's just awesome as well. Uh, but if you see Amir, you could say, hey, that guy probably played football before, so he's a little bit more muscular. And that's uh, the type of person I like to kind of classify as that more of a mechanically driven athlete. Um, he's generating force through <clears throat> series elastic components uh, and really using this protein system to, to generate the force that we see. So you have this you know, two ends of the spectrum here. Uh, and again, it should be more of a continuum than saying completely two ends, but again, just to kind of elaborate on this point, the way that we would want to treat those two athletes is probably a little bit different. Um, and I say that because their mechanoreceptors are probably going to be skewed one way or the other. So someone like an Andre Degrasse, if you go in heavy and hard, you have these long sustained holds, his nervous system might not react best to that from a performance standpoint. Right, like, and this is at the track. Um, then we might see, I uh, hate to say the word, uh, become flat because I'm not sure if anyone becomes super flat, but mm. the system doesn't respond in a way that you'd want. It doesn't optimize the system. Whereas someone like an Amir Webb, he's going to respond really, really well to that. But maybe it's because he's been, you know, because he's mechanically driven, those Rafinia things really like to get stimulated. And that's the neural input that he needs to, you know, have him perform at his best. And so <clears throat> those are, I mean, some of the, the I, in a superficial level, some of the things that we start to look at uh, and how that influences our treatment standpoint. Now, if I was to take that like another level deeper, uh, we have just talked about those you know, microtubules, microfilaments, and I'm just talking about this fascially driven system and one that's, you know, more mechanically driven. It might just be that the actual genetic makeup now those you know, cytoskeleton um, elements in the cells, that might be the thing that's actually um, dictating whether you're quote-unquote fascia or fascia-driven athlete or mechanically-driven athlete um, due to the simple response time. So maybe it's, you know, an Andre's cytoskeleton is super, like, responsive and it senses things at a faster rate because it's able to sense things at a faster rate maybe we're seeing changes in its genetic makeup in a faster, faster street. Whereas someone like Namir Webb, maybe just a tad bit uh, slower to respond, but because of his muscular build, there's more receptors. And maybe that's what causes him to you know, react the way he does. Now, this is all just thoughts and ideas, and I'm not saying this is exactly what's going on, but it you know it leads to at least an interesting conversation. A conversation probably for much more smarter people than I, but um, those are at least some of the things that we're thinking about when we're going through that place. And hopefully, that kind of serves the purpose. As you can see, it's, it's a far in removed from the idea of I'm just going to you know pin and stretch this muscle and it will make things work much much more better. Um, there's a rationale, a thought process behind that. At the, the very least. The one thing I'm starting to notice with these athletes is that there is definitely a preference to some type of mechanical receptor mm. that they really respond well to. And so, hey, you know what? You know, when we talk about vibration, people laugh at it. Well, maybe 
maybe some athletes respond really, really well to that because their body's a little bit more skewed towards those pissing corpuscles, right? When we talk about that, and I know that people don't necessarily like uh, the idea of going in deep and hard, just trying to kill people because ultimately you need to you know, treat the person in front of you. But at the same time, maybe some people just really need that Ruffinian kind of stimulation. Maybe this is why body tempering works so well for the more muscular bound guys or the football players, right? Um, and then conversely to that, some people just need that light touch. Maybe that's, you know, skewing from the nervous system from a different standpoint. So I think it's it's understanding the histology to see the person in front of you. How do you ultimately skew your treatment approach so you can, again, uh, use that word optimize each athlete? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes intuitive sense because if we were to take the lenses that we view the training process through and put those lenses the, and use those lenses to view the performance therapy aspect, I mean, if you were to turn around and say to someone, you're going to do the same uh, program on the track and in the gym for the rest of your career, people would be like, that's fucking ridiculous. Or or, or, or that every, uh, and not only will you do the same program forever, but everyone's going to do the same program, the exact same, everyone. You know, anyone who knows anything about, you know, sports science or physical preparation or human performance, like, that's that's not going to work. So, like, yeah, so you're going to have responders and non-responders. Right? Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, and uh, and no doubt then therapy is the same because I suppose what underpins everything is stress physiology in terms of your presents with your body's presented with a stimulus and it's two options whether to adapt or not to adapt. And if we look at yeah. therapy like the way we look at training, well then therapeutic inputs are going to have to have variation in them, uh, variation in that they're going to have to be individual to the person, and even within that individual person, they're going to have to have some vari- variation with them over time because. You actually touched on something, and, and I don't know if you were consciously aware that you dropped this word, but it just hit a light bulb in me. You were saying that certain therapies are attractor states, and like if you were to say that in a motor, uh, a, a motor control or motor learning or skill acquisition conversation, everybody like, oh yeah, yeah, attractor states, fluctuators. I was like, that's the same thing with therapy. If you did the same therapy all the time, your body will 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 build an attractor well to that therapy. And eventually, it will just stop the body from adapting if you keep giving it the same input all the time, just like in training too. Like so, the the law of diminishing returns and the law of accommodation or adaptive resistance is applicable to every aspect of life. Like I always say that, like you know, so in nutrition, if I keep spiking insulin, I become insulin resistant. If me and you, Jazz, were locked in a room together for like five years and saw no one else, I'm pretty sure our resistance ratio will go up. Whereas you normally don't see a friend for a long time. It's like you're sensitized to them. So it's the same with training. You do the same thing over and over again. You're going to build up adaptive resistance. That's why variation is such a, a very important uh, principle. But it's just that we, we, we accept that and we know how important that is when it comes to the training process. Again, being the weight room on track. But then when it came to sort of the, our therapeutic inputs, it was like everyone gets the same. And not, to, not only does everyone get the same, but you're going to get the same over and over. So it's just that... A, and Andre Spino spoke about that the, uh, two weeks ago at the FRC. He goes, we don't treat mobility work like we treat training. He's like, there's no specificity. There's no overload. There's no recovery strategy. There's no uh, variation. He's like, if you apply the same training principles to mobility as you would with any other physical capacity, he's like, it, it's you'd get far better results. So it's, it's, just, it's the same then in terms of performance therapy, that if we just took the lenses that we view training through and put those same lenses on, to view performance temperature, I think we, we would we would ask better questions and we'd start to see, you know, 
I, I mean, I couldn't say we could see better results, but I think it would just push the field forward, you know what I mean, instead of kind of... Well, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree, absolutely. Mm. Like, it's, you see these models, like, there's you know, a model thinking uh, way of doing things. It's it, it procedures, as you kind of, as you touched on earlier on, this um, uh, archaic thing of just procedure things, you know, whereas, like, if, if you, and we notice in training, it's like, because training needs to be individualized to be, to be, to be optimal for the individual, so it's the same with therapeutic incomes. We, like we know that a cookie cutter program, as you kind of touched on there, it's like Dan coach fastest, Dan fastest, like it'll work for a third, won't work. It'll overtrain a third, undertrain a third, and work for a third. And it's like, why aren't we applying that the same therapy right now? Sorry to put it across you. No, absolutely. No, I I totally agree to that. Right. So it's um, it's definitely interesting to see these correlations you can make in all realms, uh, both physical preparation and therapy. Um, and it's having you know, people kind of understand that. Um, Again, from that more learning standpoint, the thing that Stu and I have been kind of chatting about is how much variability are we opening? How much? How many degrees of freedom um, do we really need? And is there a point where it gets to be too much so that you know self-organization doesn't occur, or at least perhaps doesn't occur at the rate we, we want it to? How much of being in a flow state matters? And I think you know, those questions are, are things we need to a do a better job of kind of answering. Uh, uh, but B, and perhaps more importantly, at least have an understanding of, right? And that's where I think performance therapy, you can start to see this, uh, this differentiation between that and uh, we talked about before, just procedure knowledge or just you know, being in a clinical setting where everything is, and granted, because it has to be uh, you know, ticking off boxes, right? You actually start to think about things a little bit differently. Yeah, absolutely. Chaz, you have been appointed the the master uh, the, the master uh, coordinator of all chiropractic and physical therapy schools. Uh, so in terms of in terms of the curriculum, so tell me how, how would that look? Because I know when I was over in Altus, you were very big on. These you know differentiate between buds and then procedural knowledge and etc. And yeah, you were you'd always say to me you were so shocked at like how poor people's practical knowledge was coming out of college. So just for the guys listening, Jazz would often give a few little uh, in 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 services to us interns, and he'd just like come out with this like okay, draw the brachial plexus, and then we'd all be like, uh, and he goes, okay, we 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 need to backtrack here a bit. But just in, in terms of if you were to if you were to outline a educational curriculum in your mind that would be optimal in getting uh, students prepared for the rigors of uh, being in the trenches um, in, in in a performance therapy field, like how would that curriculum look? You know, would it be a three, four, five year program? How would the semesters look? Have you you know has that even entered your head? Like have you ever kind of thought about how how would you structure a uh, an, an education course for students who wanted to get into performance therapy. Funny you ask that question, Robbie. Um, during my, my time at Cairo College, uh, we thought about this exact question. Uh, and this is where uh, rehab to performance was kind of formed. Uh, for those of you who, who, aren't, uh, who aren't aware of what rehab to performance was, it's a student-run club that um, originally started in, in Toronto and luckily had spread to the majority of chiropractic schools, uh, as well as some uh, uh, doctors and physical therapy uh, programs uh, 
within the U.S. and now it's kind of made its way almost around the globe. Uh, and what that purpose of that program was was to to help educate people on uh, at that time kind of again a movement based approach or having at least an understanding of uh, some other avenues that you could take uh, in addition to solely using manual therapy. Uh, and that might have been, I think, the, the starting point, uh, kind of where your, your question stems from. Now, to add, again, layers on top of that, what I think a program uh, would look like, and again, I don't I don't want to say that schools are doing a bad job. That, that's not the case at all. I think that the education that you get uh, in, in these institutions is taught for a specific reason, for sure. Uh, we have to understand as a graduating clinician that is not just the the sports realm that we want to obviously be involved in, just have an understanding of that, but you still need to know your uh, red flag, what not to do, when to refer out. So I just want to, before I answer this question, I want to clarify that I think the yeah, education system, uh, especially the school I graduated from, is fantastic. Uh, maybe what needs to change a little bit is just the students' uh, ability to kind of accept why things are being taught and why they're important. Uh, so don't just throw, you know, the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, but so if, if I had the ability kind of to create my own uh, institution to prepare people for uh, a career in performance therapy, I think uh, going over kind of the three systems of knowledge, uh, according to me, and of course, this is not meant to, you know, uh, supplement or even augment what's known about learning theories at all by any means, but just the categories, I suppose, that I've seen from uh, various interns and, and various attendees, I like to kind of group it into three different streams. Uh, the first would be BUDS, which is what we define as basic undergrad demolition. So do you have a, a good understanding of just basic undergraduate work? And that basic undergraduate work can be obviously histology, anatomy, physiology, um, having a, a good understanding of just basic sciences. And without that understanding, um, everything else just starts to become words or things that you do. You, you perhaps don't start to actually think uh, as to the reason why things work or perhaps the reason why things don't work. You don't start to question things. and You start to lose a, I think a little bit of that creativity that you need as a therapist. Uh, again, just so people understand, I think being a therapist is equal parts you know, understanding your science to having philosophy or creative ability because that's ultimately what we are when people talk about having good hands or bad hands maybe it's, it's no different than hey that guy has a good jump shot that guy doesn't have a good jump shot that person looks really, really athletic in the movement and that person doesn't and so there's obviously a creative aspect to that so emphasizing undergraduate work I think would be a, a big thing for me but in addition to the classical things I think we need to do a better job of understanding anatomy and start to look at you know European texts instead of just solely relying on you know a netter's anatomy book, which depicts everything as this really nice 2D uh, picture that's symmetrical, and then you go to your anatomy lab and you realize that hey, this looks nothing like uh, what I'm seeing in this book. Uh, in addition to that, just respecting that there's a lot of different structures that sometimes are removed by anatomists because they don't think they're important that we now know are obviously vital to the system. Obviously, fashion is the, the, the first thing that jumps out with that. Um, it was something that they just thought was just, you know, some, thought that was irrelevant. It was just a muscle. That's really what 
drove in that uh, for a while until we started to realize that, hey, this thing's actually really important. So uh, having a good understanding of your undergraduate work ethic is, is crucial. The second stage that people kind of fall into, uh, and this is a stage you need to go through, uh, but ultimately you want to be able to transition out of this just procedural knowledge. So again, schools will teach you orthopedics, orthopedics 101, how to do a shoulder exam, how to do a knee exam. And those things are important. You need to know various stress tests to the body to you know, be able to assess the anatomy. By not going through that, you're, you're just solely relying on feel, which you know, for some people may not be a bad thing, but for others, it doesn't allow them to put things into context. And so uh, having some some form of education that's very segmented may not be a bad thing, right? Uh, it's just that do we stay in that area? And then what I see now is that you have these courses that really take advantage of that. You go to a weekend course, you certify whatever certification it is, and it's just a bunch of procedures, especially from the soft tissue standpoint. Uh, here's what we do for Here's what we do for the gastro. And you just need to go through these steps. Just bang off one by one, and that's it. Instead of being able to actually kind of have an understanding of, okay, well, here's where the relative is. Here's the general scope of what I need to be doing. Gastro, I probably need to do some type of dorsiflexion. But are they always just going to be, you know, laying supine on the table while you do that? Or is it okay for them to be silent? Is it okay for them to be prone? Maybe you're, you're actually doing them standing up. And so all these principles can be applied, but you're just having a different, uh, uh, I guess, a way of doing it, of being more creative and finding it. As you know, Spina, that I should have mentioned this earlier, Spina has been a big help for me as well. Uh, Spina would describe as just finding the tissue tension score. And I think that's what you need to be able to do. Uh, the third step, and this is probably where I like to live the most, and it's just actual intelligence. Uh, being able to put together and have a very good understanding of the first two streams and then being able to apply that in real life. And when I say real life, sometimes it's almost real time isn't fast enough. If we were at you know, Olympic trial and we have five minutes of a call room and you and I are working together, me turning to you and asking you a question of what you think, that might be too slow. I might have just missed my boat because now I'm you know, down to three minutes to get input. And this guy's just about to go run for, you know, hopefully being able to make it to the Olympics, which is every sprinter's dream. And so you, you, you need to be able to kind of, uh, on the fly, have a solid understanding of those other two streams and then be, being able to apply it. That's why I think actionable intelligence is having the knowledge, having the ability to assess, and then putting in a small input to make a drastic change. And that's where, if I have an area to focus in, if you look at it from an institution standpoint, in the later years, that's where it would be. Uh, introducing students to a, a different way of looking at the body, uh, looking at notational analysis to determine what a diagnosis, and we'll say the word diagnosis, might be, uh, instead of just, hey, here's the procedures to do a shoulder exam. Let's watch this thing in real life. If it was a, you know, a baseball pitcher, let's watch him you know, throw and see if we can pick out where uh, breakdowns are occurring and why that shoulder might be uh, the victim, not the culprit. And so I think those would be uh, the three areas at least I would want to touch upon.
in addition to that, I think just having the exposure to different modalities, different ways of thinking, and different individuals. Confirmation bias is something that we need to fight on daily. Um, you can do the same thing again and again and again, get a relatively good result, and then you start to think, this is it, this is the solution, right? Uh, in essence, in doing that, you just created your own procedure, and that's the thing that we're trying to fight in the, in the long term. And so it's, um, I think, exposing everyone to have uh, a shed, a tool shed, versus a toolbox, and but knowing when to use the right tool, right? Instead of just being stuck to the same thing again and again and again. Uh, I think that would be a huge emphasis on, on what I'm doing. Yeah, I mean, you brought you brought up a good point there, or in terms of confirmation biases, it's it's, it's really a, it's it's a it's a very interesting topic, confirmation bias, because even you know if we if we think we're being as objective as possible. We never can truly be as objective as possible because we're always going to have some type of bias in the back of our mind, no matter no matter what we're sort of trying to perceive or what we're thinking about or what is being presented in front of us. So it's it definitely is an interesting area. I suppose it's it's just it's probably a case of trying to become as aware as we possibly can of what is presenting to us in any given moment in time. But absolutely, and it, you it's know, okay. like. And, and, and that goes for any aspect in life, not just obviously performance therapy, but obviously confirmation biases bleeds into every aspect of life. They be that in your personal life and your professional life. So, yeah, it's a huge thing. Yeah, so it's, it's a massive Yeah, thing. absolutely. Like, like Dan says, like, we're looking to develop problem solvers. Yeah. And w when you start to develop this confirmation bias, the, your ability to solve problems is severely limited because you just can't get over that one, that one aspect, right? Having things work in the past. And this could be, like, when I say I'm doing the same thing, it could be you have an athlete uh, who has knee pain. Like, oh, yeah, tibial internal rotation. We didn't work on that. On Monday, you, you do some, some work in that. You do some mobility, and it fixes everything. You think, great, now i got a solution. They can come back, like, literally the same day. And you can do the exact same thing, and it doesn't work. Right? So you have to be aware of that fact. that you Don't just get stuck into the same things and I think this brings up another kind of good point. It's not just what we do from a manual therapy standpoint. There's a whole lot of other influencers that occur, like just the environment, um, how you speak to an athlete. Like you can be the best therapist in the world. You can do fantastic work, but an athlete may not like the sound of your voice. And because they don't like that, that, that therapy is just not going to work for them. Whereas you can have someone who, you know, I've been sitting here talking about what not to do, or things you don't want. Let's just say we have, you know, the therapist who is exactly that person who doesn't know Bud, person who just stuck in procedural knowledge. You know, he just has a way of communicating with an athlete. He does the same thing for everyone, but it just works, right? So there's a lot of uh, different fractures that can lead to various emergent properties. We need to be kind of aware of that, respect that. But I think an easy solution, or at least to get you on the right track, would be. Just be aware of your confirmation biases that you have in treatment approach. Do everything in your power to constantly be fighting that. It's not easy. It's a mental grind. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you now that working here at Altus has been the most humbling thing in the world. You'll leave more days with questions that have been left unanswered, feeling as if you're not that problem solver, uh, than you will thinking, hey, I had a great day today. I just fixed everything. 
first go, like this is perfect, things are just flowing for me now. Uh, but I think it's being in that state has really uh, molded me into a different therapist. And I think it's uh, an experience that everyone uh, should go through at some point, for sure. It's just that struggle, I guess, if you will. Great stuff, Jazz. In terms of, I suppose we've kind of touched on this in some of your aha moments, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. In terms of some of the biggest lessons you've learned so far in your career, what would you say they've been? Um, the, the one that I just actually, I think we just talked about is, uh, you know, if I was to have this institution, I'd bring in everyone from, from different like uh, knowledge streams. When I first started off, I think that, like, like everyone else, it was, uh, it was just hard-headed. Uh, I, I thought that certain modalities were the solution. Uh, I would say that, in all honesty, in my first year of school, that uh, physical preparation was almost more important than manual manual work, and that you know, just doing good rehab will, will ultimately lead to change. And to a certain extent, that you know, that could be very well true if you don't respect adaptation. It's easy to draw a conclusion that, hey, if we do exercise A, we're going to get adaptation A. Uh, but at that time, for me, it wasn't that, hey, you know, manual therapy can also give you an adaptation or at least set you up to get a, a chance to uh, really utilize whatever means you want to create that adaptation. Uh, and so I, I think that was the first big thing for me is understanding that, hey, you know, a manual approach is something that needs to be respected in the same realm. You can see that through the conversation that we just had. Um, the other thing I, I think is understanding that, again, along those lines, there are different therapeutic interventions that some of us just don't really like. Um, if I was to say that, for me, using uh, modalities is something that I'm not a big fan of, I think that the pigmentation with that is that you just you start to think that you, you become that typical uh, clinician who uses isostim for everything, right? Uh, but again, if we start to respect uh, the different mechanoreceptors, maybe that modality is something that they'll respond really well to, and some athletes won't respond well to. If you look at acupuncture, uh, with, especially with electrical stim, some people love it. Some people hate just getting a needle in them, right? So you have to be able to kind of search and find that and get rid of some of the connotations you have with different types of therapy uh, then just be a little open. And I think that's the biggest thing uh, that I've started to realize is that there's a whole whole like realm of therapeutic interventions that you can do. Uh, I think it would serve you well to at least be familiar with those that uh, people in your network have the ability to do. And that you can use your network to your advantage. It's okay if you don't have you know, the ability to do a certain skill set. Um, I remember, like, like to, to you know, drive this point home, probably when you were here, I asked you to eat it when you were athletes, right? Like, that, that's me as the head of you know, sport men asking the intern if they can help me with something. Um, and I, like, again, for me, that's not a hard problem at all. Mm. Uh, there's zero ego in what I do. And so I, I think that there needs to be, uh, to some degree, at least that uh, lowering of people's ego when it comes to certain therapeutic interventions, at least giving something a chance. Yeah, that, I, I, I think I think that's something that we we become better at over time, or 
you know, I suppose people who, who, who become masters in their craft become better at, at either realizing that and then implementing it within their lives, this idea that they need to sort of realize that uh, it's they need to diminish the contribution of ego and realize again that the process is never really about you in in terms of what you're presenting to the athletes in front of you. It's all about you being a facilitator and, and that there is no attack on you as an individual if there is a certain area that you're, that you are currently lacking some knowledge. And so I definitely think uh, it's, it's something we, we begin to appreciate and become more aware of the longer we go on our careers is this idea that, you know, we really need to just set aside the egos here that like there is no egos and, and there, there is no need to have one because really, you know, this is just a safe place to be. So like, there's no need to feel you have to keep a shield up, you know, or, or it's okay to say that I don't know. And in fact, it, it makes others respect you even more. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, the athletes here buy into that as well. Um, if you just give them some some answers, they'll see through it, right? They're they're not they're not dumb individuals. They're actually highly highly intelligent, so they'll pick up on things. Um, whereas if you're just honest with them, yeah, I think they'll they'll definitely respect you more. So you don't have this fear of oh man, if I don't tell this person something, they're I'm going to lose them. That's not going to happen. Sometimes if, if you do tell them something, that's when you actually lose them. Right? So I think that that has been a big thing for me. Uh, the other aspect of it is just respecting. How many different ways you can kind of mold a nervous system? There's uh, a lot of different techniques um, drawn again from various various practitioners. Uh, I think that has been a big, a big realization for me is that I, I need to do a better job of uh, at least studying. You know, maybe it's just massage techniques. Uh, maybe it's more of an osteopathic lymphatic drainage technique. Uh, just being better with my hands and nose area. Something that obviously we don't really touch on in Cairo school, but it's crossing those little boundaries, uh, finding people who can uh, at least help you on that journey. I think is, is crucial as well. So, uh, I would probably do another thing that I've really kind of hit home since beginning the process. Yeah, big time, big time. And just just touching up on the ego thing. I mean, anyone who I've met who's a master in their craft, like that, they, they never have an ego, you know, that there all seems to be certain similarities between masters. And it's probably because of the previous interview I just had there with Liam Hennessy, we, we touched on this topic in that, you know, if you seek out masters, no matter who they are or what sort of, uh, profession they're in or craft, if you will, that they, that they, uh, that they are masters in, be it music or literature or poetry or coaching, there is all these common trends. One is that, again, they they don't seem to have an ego. They're the very first pe- person that would usually say, I know enough to know, I know very little. Uh, and then they're also, they also seem to have this tendency to have very um, broad depths of knowledge in many different areas. So they seem to have a lot of breadth in their knowledge and not so much be isolated in, in one particular area. Now, they may be seen as a, a master or an expert in one particular field, but they're a master in that field because they have such a breadth of knowledge in all fields. And even some, some of those fields may seem very unrelated to the one that they're a master in, but they are just experts at putting dots together and realizing that, uh, you know, that basically everything is connected on a fundamental level. So it's, uh, you know, see certain teams. So just, uh, 
I guess I, I'm kind of harping on about ego lately because it's been something on my mind an awful lot because things I've been thinking about lately are these things of like uncertainty in people's lives and how big of a, a thought process debt plays in, in our life because debt is the ultimate question of uncertainty. And then I think that leads to people being very egotistical or, or, or it leads to people, you know, uh, building up their egos and, and uh, hanging on to certain dogmatic belief systems that they have, be it religious, re- religious beliefs or political beliefs or ideological beliefs or personal beliefs. And it also leads them to defending certain things uh, blindly without really being a critical thinker because these beliefs they have are safe to these people and again this 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 is covering like not just uh not just performance therapy but but it but it's you know in all aspects of life but i, I think we can if we were to distill it down into our profession of physical preparation sports performance and performance therapy this is where you get into these things of people saying that this is better than that and that's a lot of horseshit yeah this works and that or you know this method is better than that method this therapeutic input is better than that or PRI this, FMS this, DNS this, fucking, you know, gets into these, just these, uh, uh, territory wars, you know, and then it probably happens then in terms of the interdisciplinary team, you know, where you have the strength and initial coach fighting with uh, the sports medicine and then they're they're fighting with the the skills coach. And I mean, that's one great thing in Altus is that, and like you constantly hear this, but it is true, like that there's a really seamless integration there at Altus between you know, the track and field coaches and the performance therapy and the athletes. And it very much is a team and family type atmosphere and effort there. And again, just this concept of just there's no need to have an ego here because Altus is a safe place to be. Nobody, yeah. Nobody's going to be treated like they're stupid or they're dumb or, you know, you'll never be like, oh, my God, I can't believe you taught that. There's never that type of attitude there. So it's uh it's been able to set up that environment that's very very special and, and it's uh it is a, it is a special thing to be able to do and it's a great place to work so I can see how someone like yourself obviously is thriving there and just for the listeners like I, I remember Jasper around said to me like one day he was just like if I was offered a job that would offer way more money right now he says I wouldn't go because this place is just it's, it's incredible like I, I know that I'm just it's too much of a growth facilitation office right now so would you still agree with that Jazz? Well absolutely yeah absolutely man. Um... The, the autonomy that I have here, uh, the culture that we developed, yeah. it's it's just unique, very very unique environment that will I think uh, you know continue to foster my growth uh, as a practitioner. Um, and just to just to mention something uh, regarding that ego piece, I think that a small part of me thinks that ego is a shortcut to mastery. Like yeah. if you start to develop this idea that you're better than everyone else, you, you're just trying to reach this like master level sooner than it needs to be. And again, time, just tying things into kind of jujitsu, like the master is the red belt, right? Not the black belt, the red belt. But starting from a white belt and seeing that it's going to take like 10 plus years to get a black belt. And then if you ever were lucky enough to get a red belt, which is probably not going to happen because you're not an adventure, but that would be the ultimate you know, master, if you will. But for me, it's the journey. That's what's more important. It's the, you know, those steps that you're taking along this path and falling. Uh, and being, you know, aware that that's where you're actually going to learn the most. Uh, and having an ego in jiu-jitsu, well, trust me, will get you nowhere. It's very humbling. You could be someone like me, like, you know, 215 pounds, 6'1", big, quote-unquote, strong guy, getting submitted by a 140-pound, you're, you know, sorry, 140-pounder who's 14 years old because they have better technique. 
And so it's it's humbling in that, that point. And I think therapy is really no different. Um, people who go in with this ego are shortcutting their process. Um, and it's, again, to me, process-driven is always going to be better than result-driven. Um, if you're constantly learning, that's where you, you essentially want to be at. And it's okay. Like, it's okay not to be the master, right? It's okay to just be on this journey and, and admit that. Like, again, here I am, I'm the quote-unquote lead, but I'm still on that journey as well, and I'm okay with that, right? So um, I think the, the more, uh, especially with the, the younger uh, clinicians who are coming up who, who just want to get to, you know, this certain level immediately, just, you know, it's okay to take your time to go through it. Sometimes a grind is what you need uh, with that proverb, the grind sharpens the axe, right? Like, I know it's been said and done, but I, I think it's actually quite true. So apply that same thing to both ego and mastery. Absolutely. And, you know, it's been a big topic lately on the podcast with some of the guests, this, you know, idea of mastery. And I, I think, you know, a lot of us, I know myself, and, and I think you'd agree too, we've gone through that process where when we were a little younger, we probably thought we knew a lot more than we did. And, and, we probably for a little while maybe kind of stalled a little bit on, on our path to mastery and then we probably got a, a crude awakening at some stage. I know for me it was when I actually read the book Mastery by Robert Greene, but uh, like mastery is, is again, it's it's like most things in life, it's not a destination, it's a continual journey and, and, a, and a process that's in continual flux because as organisms we are always in that continual flux all the time. We're, we're, we're all a dynamic organism that's always changing on a moment-to-moment basis and mastery again is, is just a journey and i think it's because we live in a society of instantaneous gratification you know and obviously the social media outlets that are around now really sort of perpetuate that and, and it's tough for particularly you know the last generation or two generations you know particularly like the millennial generation who who have grown up where they've known nothing but instant gratification i mean at least me and you can, oh, absolutely me, yeah. me and you can still remember a time before mobile phones like I, I can remember i still like back in the day where i had to ring someone's house phone to see if they wanted to go out and play whereas you know you get kids now they've, they've known nothing but laptops and ipads and iphones and computers and definitely mobile phones anyway and it's just you know constant stimulation 24 7 and the ability to concentrate and to be able to again like the, the more masters i've interviewed or had the pleasure to sit down and have a discussion with Again, you see these constant themes, and one huge theme is delayed gratification. Like it was just now, some of them might not have used that phrase or used that word, but it was basically mastery. One huge part of mastery is to be able to delay gratification. It, it seems to be one of the huge stepping stones to mastery and on the journey of mastery or, or to the yeah, you know, on the pathway to mastery. Um, so it's uh yeah, it's just again it's been a huge sort of thing I've been thinking about and meditating about is this idea of delayed gratification. Well, absolutely, right? and you see it like at every level too. Like I can think back to you, know, you tell someone, hey, you know, I think I want to go to med school, and your response is, oh, good for you, you'll be a great doctor. And just the fact that they're already giving you this gratification, you haven't even applied yet. Yeah. The, prob- the probability of you now even wanting to pursue, it, like I'm not saying it for sure, but like there's. A little bit of hesitation now because you got the reward already before you did any of the work, right? Um, social media, don't get me wrong, it's been it's been great because it, it is furthering our understanding, and ability to share ideas um, is happening, you know, in real time. But you also have those 
typical internet gurus who can really kind of create their own tribe and make it seem as if they're this all-knowing benevolent power that has the answers to everything, and they have like no no real experience. There's no in the trenches thought, um, and so I, I totally agree with you on this idea of you know having this delay, and it's almost again a necessary process um, in your professional development, without a doubt. Jazz, what would you say would be your top resources to everyone listening? So this can be many things from books to um, courses, webinars, websites, even individuals themselves, mentors you've had. Just what are some of the top resources you would recommend? And again, they don't have to be just limited to the um, sports performance field or the performance therapy field. It can be anything you feel would benefit anyone listening. Um, yeah, I think the first thing I would say is actually anyone who has interned at Altus. Um, I think <laughs> you guys are, are the people that kind of bring up these new ideas, right? Because you're, you're constantly taking whatever we had just talked about and molding it into your own and then asking questions about that based off your previous knowledge. And to me, that's really interesting. Right, like the conversation that we just had. Um, now I need to look into, you know, mastery more. Right, and so I think that that for me is a, a tremendous resource. Is the people that you're already around. Uh, if I had to go from uh, a textbook or just kind of uh, uh, in an education standpoint of learning, um, I think having a good anatomy textbook is essential. Uh, there's tons that are out there. Um, from the French anatomy textbooks, from Bouchard to The Body Movable by Gorman. I think that's a great textbook to have. And that's something that I constantly go back to read. Uh, although, if you can think that you know the anatomy, uh, I think it's always good just to go back and kind of retouch on things or learn things you don't know, or you didn't know that were there. Um, I think that's a tremendous resource to have. As far as uh, websites go, I think this that that depends on the individual. Um, I like to you know read blogs just to give me an idea of what is kind of up and coming. Uh, we've talked about this before. I think Maladin's site is fantastic, uh, especially if you're into like the physical preparation side of things, um, and even being able to pull tangents from therapy side of stuff. Uh, I think his blog is is really 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 good. I encourage people to check that out. Um, creating your own little network, I think, uh, it was like a, a paper or study, but it seems like Facebook is the source for a lot of uh, information if you get involved with the right people. So following your mentors might just be that next uh, resource that you kind of need to develop. Um, again, remember, it should be a two-way street, but um, I mean, Charlie posts stuff all the time. I think it's super interesting. Or Stu will post things which I think are super, super interesting. And then being able to have a conversation about it afterwards, I think that's where the real money kind of kicks in. Because now your your resource becomes that communication piece versus just strictly what you read and what your interpretation of that uh, particular read was. Um, I think, yeah, those would probably be, right now for me, the, the main ones. I'm sure there's some things that I'm missing out there, but... Um, I'd say for, for the listeners out there, regardless of where you are at in your career, 
the mentors and these are the biggest thing that would, that would be the biggest resource for me just having the right people uh, who are surrounded who are willing to help and who are willing to learn from you as well great so from kind of wrapping up here uh, what would be your top advice to all the to all the listeners and again could be anything from life advice to personal spiritual development to advice as a coach, as a therapist, as a friend, as a you know, as a husband. As I know, you're married. Um, could be anything you you feel could be beneficial again for the listeners. Um, yeah, I think that the big thing that uh, for me, uh, at least over the last what is it, probably like the last year for sure. Um, prior to this as well, but it's just taking that extreme ownership. You know, obviously there's a book, but having ownership in what you do um, is, is a huge, um, huge piece for me. I think that that can be life-changing. Um, you know, taking responsibility uh, for your actions, taking responsibility for potentially other people's um, actions, that can start to kind of mold how you how you go about your, your day-to-day interactions, both with yourself, with your wife, with your co-workers, with anything. Um, and so I think that would be the, the big rock there, is this ability to understand that uh, ultimately things will come down to you. Uh, everyone has a choice to do whatever they want. It's what you choose to do with your time that matters the most. Um, constantly being this person that's making excuses or complaining uh, and not really kind of just grasping the bull by the horns, if you will. Um, it, it's just, I think it never, it never ends well from a personal development or even a career development standpoint. You get stuck in these ruts and you just don't know how to get out. So, um, especially to, for the young clinicians out there, um, extreme taking extreme ownership of, of your certain situations and surroundings can be a, a big factor in your development. Great stuff. Jazz, is there anything that we uh, haven't touched on so far that you would uh, that you'd like to touch on before we wrap up? I think you know, we touched on a lot of things. We'll probably have to come back and do a part two. Hopefully, hopefully the listeners kind of enjoy that a little bit more specific. I think that we uh, we covered a pretty broad range of topics, which is kind of describes my current mind state, more of a generalist than anything else. But uh, I hope I hope that everyone got at least one piece. Um, out of that conversation and if that piece stems um, you to go down a certain route or investigate something a little bit further then you know, we, we've done our job here on this podcast yeah I um, think just, was, just oh sorry it, well, I was just going to say for me some takeaways there were definitely this idea of the uh, attractor state of therapy you know again like when you said that I was like oh like I know that when it comes to like skill acquisition of more like performance oriented things you know be that a skill like striking a baseball or sprinting or skill in hurling or getting football or soccer or, you know these attractions and then when you said it about therapy it was like that makes complete sense because every you know basically what underpins everything is input and then output you know it's, uh, stress physiology you're presented with a stimulus and then either you adapt to it or you don't adapt to it and if you keep adapting to it it's its benefit is going to diminish over time so it just clicked things maybe because Spina spoke about it a bit too at F4C so I'm kind of hearing the same thing through different means and avenues. So that was a big takeaway for me. And then the other thing too was the different therapeutic inputs on different athletes, fascial driven versus, uh, I know you don't like the term fascial driven, <laughs> but uh, uh, versus mechanical guys, maybe, you know, the, the Amir versus the Andre. 
I think even a, maybe a better example might be uh, Akeem. He, would he be more sort of an yeah. earlier muscle-bound type person? Like he, he, oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so for people that don't know, that's Akeem Hayes, who's a Canadian sprinter, who won a bronze medal in the... Was it the 4x400? Four four, four, sorry, 4x100. Four 4x1, four, four yeah. Four, yeah, 4 I was going to say, sorry. It was, it, the, the second I said it, I was like, hold on a second, no, 100, 100. Yeah. Four uh, by four. I don't think he. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think. I think. I, I. I think. Uh, if you said four to Akeem, he'd fucking. Uh, I. I don't know what sort of reaction he'd give you. It probably wouldn't be a nice one though. Anyway. But uh, <laughs> th- that that was a that was a well actually it would be because he's such a nice guy. He's uh, an yeah. yeah, he's a lovely guy. Um, but uh, that was another thing. He had the different therapeutic inputs to those sort of categories, you know, the more mechanical guys versus more of a, again, if you want to say more elastic fascial guys, we'll just term it at that for now. Because um, yeah. it, it, it reminded me too of Joel Jameson and his HRV manual, the way he had the different recovery protocols for sympathetic versus parasympathetic dominant nervous system guys. And, you know, again, like a lot of, you know, the more cynical, and it's not cynical, it, it, is, a, it is a legit question from a critical thinking standpoint. Like, well, show me some evidence or, you know, objective evidence that someone's sympathetic, someone's parasympathetic, and someone's fascially driven versus fucking more near muscularly driven or mechanically driven. It's like, listen, they're like they're, these are just concepts and ideas, and that's how research and 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 that's how you know we keep pushing the field forward. Is that everything was an idea to start off with? So these are just concepts. No one's saying that these are facts. Like it's just to to to, to kind of uh, initiate thought processes. So, but they would be the the sort of two or three big things I took away from that era, and then also. You know, just reiterating this concept of ego and white people of ego, and I guess it comes back to having safety blankets and safety mechanisms because of this idea of uncertainty. Because in, in Sapolsky's Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers book, you know, he talks about which is the, excellent, by the way. Yeah, excellent. Like, one of the highest forms. Everyone should read that book. Yeah, everyone should read that book. One of the highest forms of stress to the human organism is uncertainty. So, I mean, the ultimate question we all have is death. And I notice this isn't the this this podcast to be more about you know. Uh, performance therapy and, and physical preparation but I mean that is the ultimate question of what is Africa's life and the simple fact of the matter is no one can tell you no one knows and really the only thing you can do there is come to an acceptance of that or, or try to facilitate a journey of acceptance towards that and uh, b- because otherwise you're going to start uh, developing these sort of certain dogmatic belief systems again that we spoke that I touched on earlier on that will sort of limit your potential in life because they could they could be self-limiting in themselves. And uh, the reason you have these sort of beliefs or habits or behaviors is because you feel that they're safe to hang on to because they're adding a sense of control and certainty into your life. Whereas, again, they could be in the long run holding you back from growing more as a person and, and, facil- and facilitating yourself to more self-actualization simply because of your fear of the question of what is next, which we all have at some level. But the, the thing is that on a more sort of uh, broader scale, that type of ego from this idea of uncertainty is going to start bleeding into other aspects of your life. So your professional aspects, you're going to start viewing your role of a coach if you're a coach in this sort of same mindset. You're going to start building up these belief systems within like your training aspects. Like this is the only way. This is it because it's safe. It's certain. Yeah. I know it. And it's going to curtail you and limit you then as the success you have as a coach and as a person, as a human, on so many aspects. Not just on this more global life aspect, but getting down to being able to master your craft and stuff so again kind of just like everything's fucking connected everything's kind of at a fundamental level like quantum physics everything's energy and vibration and the more i speak to people like you who's in the process of mastering his craft and the stupid mills and the band fast and the dr liam hennessy's who i spoke on earlier on and the jack whites the musicians of this world and you go on to 
the 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 chef's table on Netflix, another form of mastery. Like all these people are kind of realizing that everything's connected, and they they all have these broad breadths of knowledge. They realize that nothing is in isolation, and it just everything's connected. That's basically what I'm saying. That ego is just coming from this uncertainty, and it's something that we need to really investigate and meditate on. So do you see, do you see, well, in this hour and twenty six minutes. That's what you made me think about, Jazz. That's <laughs> a perfect. I've I've reached my goal then. <laughs> I, I, I can feel good about myself today. Yeah, you, can, you can go on and feel good because I just I just totally got into his head, which is perfect. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, Jazz, where can people uh, find out more about you? I know that you're. you're uh, listen, guys, I'm genuinely be serious. When I interned, this guy is a a goddamn machine. Like he just. And to be honest, you know, it's one bit of advice I give to you, Jazz. You need to start giving yourself a little more love and attention because he just <laughs> this guy, I'm not messing this guy. I've never, I actually didn't tell you this, uh, and I've actually didn't say it to anyone, not even Jordan, because it, it's only even popping into my head now, is that your level of love for your athletes is phenomenal. So that's something I just want to compliment you on. I appreciate John. that. You, you, like you, you, you put you, you go above and beyond your 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 your, your duties at, at Altus, and I think everyone who's there can fully appreciate that. And I know Stu probably would never say it because he's fucking Stu McMillan. Stu, because he's exactly. Stu, exactly, yeah. But I, I know that he definitely appreciates, you know, to to an unending degree that you are the head of sports medicine there because you're doing a fantastic job and. It was an absolute pleasure and honor to, to work alongside you while I was there for the for the three months and learn and discuss. I and I appreciate that. And remember, yeah. it's, it's a two way street, right? So I've learned just probably more from you than uh, you learned from me. Robbie is a he's, this guy's a machine too, computer man. He just knows everything about everything. So it's great to have a resource. That's why I say like our interns, they're probably the best resources you can get. We're learning a lot. Yeah, more you you get some you get some incredible interns there. I mean, our, our intern group was obviously I'm biased, but pretty special group there with with, with Jordan and, and Mike Wu and Derek and uh, Forrest, yeah. Steph and, Federico, uh, and uh, yeah, Pe- Penny Otis. Yeah, Penny Otis and Federico and uh, Yanni. Yeah. Some some great guys there, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, people just can find me. Honestly, uh, find me on Facebook. Uh, find me on, on Twitter at JR Sport Performance um, on Instagram. I don't know if you're going to get anything much other than coffee pictures on Instagram, but Dr. Jasmine But I, I love communication. Um, yeah, hopefully, I can become the resource for all the listeners who are interested in anything we have talked about before. I'm always open for conversation, always open to help as much as I can. Um, and I mean, selfishly, that's because I want to learn from everyone else as well, right? So, um, yeah. Those, those are the places you can find me and try to make this as personable as, as I can. I'm not, not really into, uh, uh, you know, I'm not trying to pitch or sell anything. Uh, I'm just more uh, more uh, concerned with having great conversations. I think that's ultimately where, where all of us start to get better. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Jazz, thanks so much. And uh, listen, we definitely we, we definitely will do a, a part two, no question. But I'll just wrap up here and then I'll say my goodbye to your brother offline. So guys... What an outstanding hour and a half from uh, Dr. Jazz. I'm not even going to attempt your second name yet because I'll just butcher it. Ran- Say it again. Randawa. Randawa. Was that good? There you go. That was well. Okay. That was okay. C, C plus. <laughs> hey, it's a pass. I'll take it. I'll take it. Right. Uh, everyone says, well, everyone spells my name wrong, so but it doesn't matter. everyone spells it B-U over here in Ireland, but it's B-O, so I feel, I, I, you know, I get the same they don't say it right. Or anyway, I'm rambling. I'm rambling. Guys, 
fantastic hour and a half here with Jazz. Really appreciate it. He's an absolute legend. He's a rock star what he does. And for anyone listening, if you do get a chance to go out to Alton, you know, to do their ACP, I would highly, highly, highly recommend it because they also have the PTP as well that goes along with it sometimes. So you get a full seven days there and you'll see Jazz in full action. And it's uh, it really is something to watch. It's uh, you know great seeing someone mastering their craft and on that journey to mastering their craft and you know i, I kind of say that as if like you know i said it on mastery isn't a destination it's a continual growth process so it's just somebody in the in the depths of of mastery of their craft so i'd highly recommend you get out there even when visit altus is probably one of the most open door place i've ever seen so like can i visit yes <laughs> so uh definitely get out there if you can so thanks for listening guys share this on social media keep leaving a review want to thank jazz one more time and take care guys be well and stay strong Thank you.